Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Fatima Al-Kadiri pulls together a heady blend of personal and political geographies. As a child, she experienced the Gulf War firsthand with the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, a trauma that was furthered by her love of video games and playing the Gulf War glorifying Desert Strike game barely two years after she saw her native Kuwait destroyed. Memory is a crucial element to how she melts music down into her own hyper-digital, often beatless landscapes. Her 2014 debut LP on Hyperdub presents a Western view of China through experimental grime productions. In her 2014 Red Bull Music Academy lecture, she recounted her unique personal history and talked about how she reframes seemingly disparate sounds and ideas. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of couch wisdom. I come from a musical heritage. You know, my grandfather was a singer. Even though um, music was considered a very lowly occupation. Why so? Because a lot of times in the West, like the role of the artist is quite exalted and romantic, but it probably wasn't like that from the way you're describing it. I think music was still seen, unless it was classical music, folk music and um, pop music in the past was still considered lowly. I would argue that it wasn't... um, It wasn't a prestigious occupation, you know, you were a person for, a performer for hire. Um, And in the Arab world, for sure, it was, it wasn't something to be proud of. You almost had to conceal it, you know. Um, In the case of my grandfather, in the 50s or the 60s, Kuwait TV decided to document uh, the folk music of the country and they came to him as a renowned um, Naham, which is a, a singer of sea music, but he renounced the documentation uh, as television uh, was um, a form of Satanism in his eyes, <laughs> which just goes to, and he died before I was born, so I never met him. I never met the you know, the musician in my family or the musical figurehead in my family. And I think that he would definitely disapprove of me being a musician, also being a woman. Um, producing music is just not not okay, you know, in his eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to uh, the role of the family in that respect, uh, what do you think the sounds of the kind of music that he was making and singing, how do you think that had an impact on you as a child? Because if you've never met him, obviously his legacy has has stayed with you in that kind of music. I mean, my father, um, even though he he never uh, made any music, was a huge listener and had a large record collection. And he played Kuwaiti folk music um, quite often and, uh, you know, wasn't shy of his father's occupation, even though some families would denounce their, um, elders, uh, relationship to music if, I mean, for prestige reasons or etc. you know, because it wasn't a respectable profession. And even the word artist 
in uh, in Arabic. I had a very funky um, experience recently where I entered Lebanon and you have to put your, your occupation in, in Arabic. And I wrote Fanana, which means female art, artist, and the man at immigration asked me if I was a dancer, which is, you know. A stripper, basically. A stripper. Yeah. Was like, I was like, do I look like a stripper? <laughs> you know? But basically, you know, a female artist is. It's just not, it's, it has a lot of negative meanings, you know, so. Um, so for a Gulf Arab woman, you're up against quite a lot um, in, in the structures of what you I do mean, right now. Especially for production. Production is pretty much 100% dudes, you know, like I have yet to meet a, a woman from the Gulf that produces music professionally, you know? I know there's, I'm sure there's girls that want to. There's a lot of women in classical Arabic music. There's a lot of women singing and performing, but writing is a different story, yeah. you know? It's, um, yeah, but I don't work in the Kuwaiti music industry, so I don't have to deal with them. <laughs> and then, interestingly, uh, your obsession with classical music as a child actually managed to inform one of your other Young Loves, which was video games. Uh, yeah. To give a sense of a time frame uh, when you're in Kuwait as a child watching all this, what is the kind of chronology for you um, up until, for example, the in invasion? I mean, I'm born in 81 and the invasion was 1990. So um, this is happening from 81 to... Mm -hmm. I mean, actually, no, that's, that's not... Accurate. 80s, from 81 to 83, I was born in Senegal. I was born in Dakar. Mm -hmm. um, so 83 is when we went to Kuwait. Mm -hmm. So from, from that time onwards, we're in Kuwait. And a lot of what we're speaking about right now is the experience of watching cartoons and listening to music and playing video games. Um, we'll probably get to that a bit later on, but it's all a very indoor experience as a child. Could you kind of develop upon your experience growing up in Kuwait uh, just before the invasion and how the invasion really changed that? I mean, there is some indoor. The invasion is when it gets 100% indoor. But um, before the invasion, no. I mean, if you're a kid, if you're a girl under the age of 10, it's okay for you to wander the streets. Over the age of 10, it's not okay for you to wander the streets. So, but even the streets are just, it's like sand, you know? You're not, you're not losing out, you know? <laughs> you're not missing much out there. Um, but it was a relatively, I mean, it was kind of like a sensory overload, you know? Because Kuwait was very safe at the time. We had, you know, almost, negligible crime rate. Every time there was a robbery or something, it was like, uh, there was a one page in the paper for crime that the entire national crime fit on one page in the newspaper. You know, it was just like, it was so um, negligible. But um, yeah, I think I was just like, in just constantly uh, consuming, you know, visual and, and musical information from both my parents and whoever was the, Comptroller of Kuwait TV who deserves flowers for life from me. You know, I don't know who that person is. Um, but when it came to uh, the late 80s, early 90s, uh, things massively changed in Kuwait and completely changed your life. Um, I know that the experience of the invasion directly influenced you starting to produce music. The invasion happened in 
August 2nd, 1990. So it was the very end of the summer. And, you know, also being a kid, you're very selfish. You don't want the summer to end. And so when um, your parents are like, we've been invaded, also the idea of invasion was so foreign. I, don't, I didn't know what it meant. I'd never heard it before. Um, and I was like, me and my younger sister were like, great, no school, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> you know, it's just like, woo, we were so happy. I mean, just like day by day, we were like, oh, fuck, you know? But the first, I would say, months, it was awesome, you know? But what did you do? I mean, we just like continued, you know, you're just the summer didn't end, you know, it was just like a, and I'm very, I, th I think I'm very lucky, extremely lucky that me and my younger sibling were so young and we should, we could just fill our time with playing with toys and playing video games and whatever, you know, but my older sister was 13 and it was just like a completely different experience for her, you know, um, but it just became more insular, you know, because we had to be indoors all the time because there were soldiers on every block. And um, we, our habit for playing video games began, but it just became more. I mean, what could our parents do? They just, we were just inside the whole time. We had to fill. You know, we had to fill our time with shit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and your parents as well. They pay, they were both um, had very important roles in their own ways. I mean, they were working for the resistance, um, so they were like, yeah, yeah, just play video games, do whatever the fuck you want. We're we're doing this thing. You know, <laughs> my my father tried to give us an Arabic lesson a day, but we were so not having it. We were just like, Ugh, no way. You know. <laughs> um, which I, you know, I, I thank him for his attempt for doing that, but we just, no, there was no, if there was no school, there was no school, you know. And also the relationship between the video games and your family. Uh, I know that something quite dramatic happened to your father whilst you're playing a video game and oh, you, yes. you weren't even aware of it. I mean, I, I became aware of it maybe an hour later, but... Um, on the basically during the invasion because my parents were members of the resistance we had to move from house to house because their names was on a list mm -hmm. for execution so we just uh, our family members had gone to wherever for the summer and were stuck like many kuwaitis were stuck outside of kuwait for for the entire period and so we were just moving from house to house, and the house that we were in on that block was a kid with Castlevania, and I would find any excuse to go to his house. So what is Castlevania, for those that don't know? I mean, at the time, it was a game on the, originally called Vampire Killer, um, it was a game on the MSX machine, which was just a little keyboard with a slot for a cartridge, but it was a computer keyboard. Um, there was no joystick or anything. And um, I barely knew this kid. I just wanted to play the game. <laughs> so he was cool, but I just like, I was like, okay, let's, let's do this, you know? And that day, my mom and my sisters, I think, had gone to visit someone, and I was unsupervised and went over and was playing Castlevania. And in the hour that I had gone, um, 
my father was taken from the house by uh, Iraqi soldiers to a prison camp in Iraq, in Basra. And uh, I was spared um, witnessing that scene. And when I came back to the house, um, there was no one there. And when my mom came back, she, she said that, your father has gone to Switzerland, <laughs> which I found hard to believe. <laughs> so I knew something was up. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, Castlevania has this very like um, special memory, let's put it this way. But, um, but it's interesting, uh, as, as horrible as it is an experience, what is interesting from a point of view of how this has influenced you going forward is that the soundtracks to these games are tied up with a, a trauma and trauma as a prolonged experience over a period of time and these certain sounds and certain images, they trigger this. So it's an ex um, a drawn out kind of experience where the music that you made from it was you trying to uh, help someone else visualize something that they can't see and that in turn you didn't even see in the first place. So it's interesting to see how the the use of like video games in your work and the experience of the invasion kind of are all tied together. Can you speak a little bit about how you actually made that those kinds of records and how you went about recreating those kind of um, f feelings in the tracks? I think that one is not so much inspired by video game soundtracks. It's inspired by the lack thereof. And Desert Strike didn't have a soundtrack. You know, so I made one for it. It just had this like sickening frequency of a chopper. Um, I think, you know, it has to do with it being when I, me and my sister towards the end of the invasion, towards the time of the, of the aerial bombing, came across a keyboard in the house and started making music together. And um, that first piece that we made together, neither of us remember sadly, but I remember the one that I made after, but I started making music and memorizing uh, little melodies on a keyboard and recording them on tape until the age of 19. So from, from 9 to 19, the keyboards just got bigger and the tapes got longer, you know? But around 19 is when I started, um, I was in the University of Miami doing a composition course and had access to a studio for the first time, um, which was very exciting. But the only samples in Desert Strike really are the sounds of, you know, gunshots and explosions. Everything else is, uh, is, is written, you know? Uh, okay, in that respect, we've spoken a lot about the Gulf so far uh, and how you relate the familiar and the unfamiliar. So maybe we'll take this personal geography to a different place. Could you give us a little bit of a story about the start of the album? Yeah, I mean, uh, I've recounted this many times, but um, basically there's this art collective in New York called Shanzai Biennial. And they were making a work uh, at PS1 that involved finding a fake version, by fake I mean that the, that the lyrics were completely wrong, uh, of Nothing Compares to You on um, YouTube. 
And then they got this professional singer, actually she's in a punk band, um, to sing it. And they wanted me to make, they sent me the a cappella and they said, can you please make us a cheap Chinese version of, of this, which is their exact words. And I was like, oh, okay. And um, I sent them this and they were like, no, this is too sophisticated. We can't use it. <laughs> I was like, oh shit. So that's interesting itself because it's too, sophisti too sophisticated to be what? A Chinese? A cheap Chinese version of... I mean, they wanted to create... They were shooting this video that was like high def, um, really, really high def, beautiful video. And they wanted the music to sound like shit. They wanted the music to, to sound like it came from a corner shop, you know? Um... And I knew that's not what I did, you know? It doesn't sound like, to me, this sounds like Chinese Gotham City, you know? And um, they were like, sorry, we can't, I literally was on the phone for the, no! <laughs> and then I was like, fuck this, I wanna use this track, and that's how it started, you know, so. So when you say a Chinese Gotham City, this is uh, a different perspective of China, uh, like an imagined China. Um, could you explain what you mean by an imagined China when you're creating tracks like these? Because the album is essentially devoted to the idea. I mean, just imagine China, just very briefly, is just a China that doesn't exist. It exists in somebody's, it exists in a collective imagination over decades, if not centuries. You know, it's like, it's like a series of stereotypes that are bricks that have been put to create a pyramid of stereotypes and a pyramid of illusions created by decades and centuries of Western ima collective imagination, you know? And when you're, you're building that pyramid of an imagined China, what, what are the blocks within that pyramid? Like, what were you thinking of when you were making this record? Well, you know, blocks are just experiences that you've had with pseudo-Chinese music, pseudo-Chinese imagery, pseudo-Chinese rituals, whatever it is, you know? Like, I quote um, uh, Lady and the Tramp, uh, we are Siamese, if you please, uh, in the record. <laughs> um, because it was an early exposure to this uh, pseudo-Chinese and imagined Chinese um, narrative, you know? And in terms of production, that might sound a little bit theoretical maybe and a bit heavy, but in terms of the production, it was actually fairly effortless for you to find these samples because they're already part of the software that you use, right? Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. It's like in Logic, I didn't notice until I started making this record that there's, a, there's an Asian kit, you know, just like it's there. It's, you know, Asian kit. <laughs> like where, where? And Asia is a huge motherfucker. <laughs> you know? Yeah, the it's idea like, of Asian meaning you know? Chinese. Yeah, this is, this is, a, this is another thing that, that the record highlights is this idea of the word Asian, you know, is like, Every time somebody, you know, we all love to think that we're individuals and people from around the world love to think that we're individuals. And, you know, if you were to refer to a, I don't know, a person from whatever country as an entire continent, you know, it maybe may, it makes sense to you to group everybody together. You know, like there's that website, Africa is not a country. Yeah. You know, it's like... That's exactly why I was just... Asia is not a country. Asia is not a country. Asia has 
the craziest amount of like the most it maybe is the most diverse continent in the world you know so to call someone asian or something asian is uh just it's doesn't make any sense it's just grouping the most diverse languages and cultures and whatever into just one monolithic whole you know so the tracks in the album and the idea behind it is a way to try and confront something like that from your own perspective? It's just about, you know, the, the record like explores the idea of like monolithic ideas, um, generalizations, false narratives, false historical narratives, colonialism, you know, like the legacy of colonialism. It's, it's, it, it, it p partly has created this false China, you know? So in terms of a personal geography, you're trying to make, uh, well, you have made, not trying to, <laughs> you made an album uh, about an imagined China from the perspective of a, a Kuwaiti woman who's lived in the States. But you're using it with a kind of loose template of a genre that's very much of a very particular city, which is London. Uh, what is your relationship with grime music and how did this tie together in the album? <laughs> I guess... The thing is with grime is, you know, I was exposed to it in, I want to say 2003. And uh, as soon as I heard it, as soon as I heard Wiley specifically and his production, I was like, okay, game over. Game over for everybody, you know? <laughs> just, it was, it just sounded like the most timeless music. It sounded like someone had taken video game music and advanced it into the realm of like, let's say classical composition whereby you couldn't guess what was gonna happen in the next four bars. You knew, you, it was repetitive, but you still didn't know how everything came together. What, how did this, it was just like, it was just such a puzzle, you know? Even if it repeated, I was like, I have still have no idea what's going on, you know? And um, it just, it, you know, the thing about futuristic music, the most futuristic music is the music that is timeless, is that if you listen to it 20 years, you're like, I still don't, I don't understand, you know? <laughs> and I felt, I instantly had uh, an affinity to grime because also it's, it was so, um, it was very digital, which appealed to me, you know? And um, it was very raw and very menacing, you know? I had this menacing, it had a taunting, which is also part of like the sparring of MCs, you know? It's like taunting each other, cutting into each other. But it, there was a playground vibe to it, you know? Like even, even if they get really violent with their threats, I'm still like, nah, you don't mean this. Even, even though some people have been killed over it, so it's not really a joke, you know? Um, and, you know, several and many and countless MCs have gone to jail, blah, blah. You know, it's like, it's a long... Uh, um, but from a production aspect, to me, there was this... Uh, reference to video game music um, because early on it was made on PlayStations, as some of you know. Um, and uh, Predator said something really beautiful in, in an interview, I don't know where exactly, but he said, grime is freedom. That's how he characterized grime. And so that 
everything to me you know it's like you can just do whatever you wanted like and so much of my music you know the beats are made haphazardly I'll be the first to admit it you know it's like I was never a beat maker I'll never classify myself as a beat maker I use melodies that's my forte you know and I I was instantly drawn to the melodies of grime you know um, and the sounds of it so a lot of my the way that I work in, in, in production is interpretation of existing ideas. So it was interpreting grime, and there's a, you know, sinogrime is, is not a real genre. It's more like a fossil that was dusted off. And I was like, oh yeah, these, these dudes all made like sinogrime. <laughs> you know, and like Code 9 was the person who kind of identified, he was like a scientist in the lab and like, found these molecules that were doing the same thing, but nobody gave it a name. Just for know? the sake of context, for people who aren't aware of that, what do you mean by that term? I mean, it's basically, sino-grime is grime that made use of, uh, quote-unquote, Asian, Asian motifs, you know? And uh, there's, there's a few. Um, producers that were making that, Jammers is a big example. Um, and but not being aware, you know, not it, it wasn't a scene. There was no sign of grime night or whatever, you know. It was just something that happened, and that's what I was trying to also explore with Asiatish, that producers from the states, from the UK, from wherever else, had were drawn to Asian motifs and music as a way of. Um, using it in a, in a kind of competitive way with each other as a taunt, you know, like as I am, I'm stronger than, than thou, you know, <laughs> like it was, it was used as a kind of holy weapon, you know, like as a Kung Fu master type of thing. Yeah, it's angry, but it's also really, it's also really elegant. And how exactly. it's executed. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of a martial art to, you know, it's use, using the language of martial art and music, you know, it's like elegant moves, etc. It's not, um, it's not brute force, you know, it has more, uh, it, ha it has more of a philosophy or more of an eruditeness or whatever, you know, it, it's, it, it has more of a str strategy behind it, you know. And that's not the only like, example of like, you being influenced by grime. Uh, we've spoken mostly about your own solo work, but you do collaborate with other people. Could you explain who Future Brown are, as well as yourself, um, and how you met? Future Brown is um, Esma Maruf, Daniel Pineda, who are uh, both producers as Nguzu Nguzu, and um, myself and... Uh, Jamie Emanian Friedman, who uh, goes by the name Jay Kush and runs the label Lit City Tracks. And um, I mean, we all kind of met in 2010, you know, in New York, and I uh, decided to collaborate as Future Brown in 2012. With your work with Future Brown, it's very explicitly um, music that you make for live artists, live recording artists. Um, what was the thinking in starting Future Brown and how you felt that you could work together with a group of people? Because I remember a really interesting uh, thing that you said that as a solo artist, you find it quite hard to physically realize 
your own ideas and that's why working in a group was really interesting for you. What did you mean by that? I don't... Um, I guess, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do by yourself, but with collaborations, you know, it's just like the more the merrier. I don't know. I just feel like, you know, you can... There's this. We, me and Jamie randomly saw this documentary right before Future Brown was was formed about um, the making of Michael Jackson's Bad album and how many producers worked on that album, including Quincy Jones and Michael uh, as executive producers. And we were like, wait, we need to <laughs> we need to be with a lot of we need to work with a bunch of people to like make um, really serious records. You know, I mean. I feel like it's fine for me to make instrumental music or occasionally sample vocals, whatever, but uh, I feel like, and like I said, because I don't really consider myself as a beat maker, you know, like working, the four of us working together, we can achieve much more, you know, especially making music for vocalists. It's hard for um, individuals to do it, you know, like we just feel like as a team, we have more power musically, you know? And also, um, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I read that you don't like to perform live at all. You just like to DJ. Um, yeah, I don't perform live. I mean, it just the idea of perf performing uh, virtual instruments, I think you have to, first of all, be like a really serious like gear programmer person to like perform stuff that's completely programmed in a computer. For me, I feel like, I don't know, I don't see it as being a very entertaining thing to watch, you know? <laughs> I just, I, I wouldn't, if there's not a, like a live singer or something, I'm not gonna get into it, mm -hmm. you know? And so that's almost the purpose of Future Brown, in a way. <sighs> yes and no, I mean, I just like, I feel like performance is a separate field, you know? Like production is one field, performance is another field that you have to invest time in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I would rather be making music than performing. It's that simple, mm -hmm. you know? Okay, so we've, we've managed to travel quite a wide, uh, <laughs> a wide area. We've been to the Gulf, we've been to the States, we've been to London. It'd be quite nice to go back to the Gulf and talk about some more collective work that you do. Uh, could you explain what GCC is? GCC is the, t the name of, of, the, uh, of the collective is based on the Gulf Cooperation Council which is a six-nation, let's say, socioeconomic pact, much like the EU. It's like calling yourself EU, you know, or NAFTA or whatever, you know. Um, and we're eight artists from, from the Gulf, and uh, we create work dealing with... Um, kind of uh, hidden rituals of the region. And what do you mean by a hidden ritual? By hidden, you know, like, how much do you know about the Gulf? Let's face it, you don't know anything, you know? Hey, <laughs> that's not fair. I mean, you know very... I know you. You know very, you know very little. Whatever the media is feeding you, it's, it's not... You know, also, there's so much being undocumented in the region there, that... 
it's just an area that's full of so much visual potential to crystallize, you know, and like explore, etc. So there's so much. Like, this is the thing. Most people, what they know about the Gulf is uh, Dubai. And Dubai is not the Gulf. Dubai is its own kind of Babylon, you know. Uh, it has very little to do with the real uh, the rest and the rest of the Gulf, you know. So it's just it's just wanting to delve into our like in, in, into our native region and explore things that are happening that nobody is is exploring really and and what do you think is happening that you can explore in gcc because there is this uh, phrase that you've used in other interviews called gulf futurism gulf futurism doesn't really have a lot to do with gcc I have to say. I mean, Gulf Futurism is a term coined by Sofia Almeria um, that has to do with the mutation of the region, the physical mutation of the region. Um, and GCC is exploring the present not, and has little to do with the past, you know? I'm curious as to how that sort of sound relates to your ongoing relationship with the Gulf. So is that quite a Gulf Arab experience for young people that yeah. are living through screens, like you live through video games and cartoons, and now young people are living through the internet and their phones, it all... No, but even when I was a teenager, you know, it was like, you couldn't date people, you could only marry them. You had All, all the dating stuff had to happen very, very under the carpet, you know? Like, it was just um, very, very difficult. It was like all on the phone, you know? You talk to a boy for like six months before meeting him, and you're like, ew. <laughs> or whatever, it was just like, it was just a phone on, a, a voice on the phone. It was like, it was all about illusion, you know? Like, creating illusions about um, relationships, and um, it still exists today. Except now people have like multiple phones for multiple personas, you know? It's all about creating a persona as far as, as Arab dating is concerned. I think it's, it's like catfish but on a national scale, you know? <laughs> it's, it's true. But with, with this, um, actually Sophia is the one that taught me about this let's call it a genre of dancing. It's called Malaya. I had no idea this existed in the Gulf. Like she revealed something to me, um, which is, uh, well, this is what I mean by hidden. It's like, I'm from the region, I didn't even know this existed. You know, this is how like secretive everything is. You know, like also if you're not a man, you know less because you have access to less, um, public and private events, you know? So um, I had no idea. And this is mostly popular in the Emirates. Um, and there's some, I mean, the women are always fully clothed, but the dancing is, you know, hypersexual and there's children at these events. I mean, it's just the most, if you, if you watch videos of this stuff, it's like, it's the most bizarre thing. You would never think that this stuff was happening over there. So with the idea of things being almost like um, in plain sight, but also hidden, um, how do you try and work through that in your music with the idea of these like 
traditions and new technologies of the Gulf? I mean, traditions, I don't think the only thing that um, maybe comes into my own personal music from traditions, I think, is how the beats are so disjointed, you know? Because if you listen to... That, for instance, that first song that we played, the music of the Pearl Divers, you know, beats are, I want to say weird, you know, they're just, they're, they're made using clay pots and um, glasses and hand, rhythmic hand clapping. And um, if you listen to Kuwaiti folk music in general, it's a combination of several things. It has, in, it uses Indian instruments, Indian drums. It uses Tanzanian um, rhythms, Tanzanian beats. Uh, I only found this out because I accidentally stumbled upon Tanzanian folk music and I was like, wow, this is crazy. <laughs> it sounds exactly like Kuwaiti music. Um, and Saudi Arabian or Ar Arabic lyrics, uh, there's Iranian um, influence. So the entire, like, just the 360, all, all everything that's around Kuwait inspires it, um, insp inspires its folk music. So it's just this like weird combination of a lot of different things. And uh, but for visually, obviously GCC is exploring the present, you know, the here and now of, of Gulf rituals, you know. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. Almost every year since 1998, we have done the main academy event in one city. But we also do various things around the world throughout the year. In fact, we may just be doing an event near you pretty soon. If you want to find out more, do check us out at Red Bull Music Academy. Com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us uh, while you're at it. It really does help other people discover the podcast. For now, thanks for listening.